sir. It is flight suit Friday time. Sam, how Danny. are you, buddy? Dude, it's good to see you, man. Uh, where are we right now? Dude, we are at HII headquarters, um, and we're about to uh, talk to a really special guest that we got. Yeah, yeah, Washington, D.C. Uh, I actually went to headquarters yesterday, uh, did one day there. I would consider myself staff tour complete. Yeah. I uh, just want uh, the log de- it. Yeah, let yeah. the detailers know. Uh, please put that in my my file. Uh, I have <laughs> two legs of the three legged stool at this point for promotion. Um, but yeah, we're back on with Flight Suit Friday. HAI has been uh, um, a very welcoming guest, and uh, we are going to get a chance to talk to the uh, CEO of HAI. So, without uh, further ado, let's get into it. Right? Yes, sir. All right. <laughs> Okay, Flight Suit Friday podcast listeners, we're jumping in with uh, CEO of HAI, Jim Viola. How you doing, sir? Good. How you guys doing? Glad to have you here. Yeah, yeah. Um, just so if you don't mind giving us a, a brief introduction of, of who you are, uh, where we're at, and uh, what your career has been thus far in aviation. All right. Glad to. I'm certainly uh, glad to hear you guys got some great backgrounds in the training side of the helicopter world. So that's, uh, that's kind of what I've been. Mm-hmm. Um, I started my career aviation-wise with the Army. Uh, back in uh, 1985, went yeah. to uh, Fort Rucker, as we call Mother Rucker in the Army, because nice. you just keep coming home to Mother. <laughs> and uh, and I did one of those things. I really I like to fly a lot as a commissioned guy, but uh, in order to kind of stay there, I, I volunteered to do a couple of things to, to keep transitions coming. So started off the TH-55 back in the day. Uh, from the TH-55, I went to the UE. From the UE, I went into the uh, scout track, so I did OH-58s. Yeah. And then I did the, uh, you know, volunteer to go to Korea so you can get a bunch of flight time. But actually, I didn't get Korea right out of flight school. I, instead, I got uh, 2nd 82nd or uh, 82nd Airborne mm-hmm. at Fort Bragg. Yeah. Did a bunch of flying there because uh, it was kind of like a what they called a bubble in flight school when I was there. And our whole flight class was all commissioned officers. So normally you have uh, yeah, warrants, all warrants right? yeah. and you have it sprinkled with some commission guys. But uh, we're a bunch of uh, butter bars and silver bars, you know, <laughs> trying to make our way through. So when my first platoon, we actually had a platoon with a platoon leader that was a senior first lieutenant. And then we had a bunch of uh, second lieutenants that were, uh, that basically were, were flying. So I had the opportunity to get some good PIC time at Bragg. And then when I went back to Mother Rucker, I'd volunteered to go to Korea if they gave me a transition. So they gave me the Cobra transition. So I got to fly Cobras. And I tell you, when people ask me, you know, what's your wow. best aircraft that you've flown, front seat in a Cobra, uh, you just can't beat it because you just hang so far ahead of the center of gravity. Mm-hmm. And then you have your stick controls. You know, you're, you get the uh, collective on the left side and your cyclics on the right side. And the cyclic, mm-hmm. you know, 1960s, it was still pressure sensitive. It's not like, you know, the cyclic of today that's between your legs. It's, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you've got to hold that thing and just pressure it. And uh, so then after that, that's when I heard about the 160th. And I wanted to try to get into the 160th special ops. I knew you had to get some goggle time. And I knew my company loved me, so I volunteered to stay there to get a command. Mm-hmm. I, I basically wanted to try to keep the guys out of trouble, so we just flew nights all the time. Yeah. You know, come to work at night, and we'll <laughs> yeah. let you go home when the sun comes up. How much <laughs> trouble can get in during the day? Yeah. So after that, uh, coming out of Korea, I went to the 160th. 160th, I picked up the Little Birds. Yeah. Uh, I was platoon leader during Somalia with the Little Birds. Uh-huh. That's the the Scout, is that what they call it? Well, you got the two you got two <clears throat> versions. You got yeah. the MH6 and the AH6. Okay, so the yeah. MH, we've got, uh, we put people on the outsides. Okay. Is that the, the Little Birds, the one they have in front of hats, I think, as a as a demo okay. uh, aircraft up it's there? It's a loach, essentially, yeah. but highly modified as they've, you know, went on from four blades to five blades to six blades. Yeah. Okay. The engine's been growing. It's a pretty pretty good aircraft uh, 
yeah, right now made by MD. Yeah. So, and then after that, I went to the Chinook. And so I went from littlest aircraft to wow. the biggest aircraft. And then I settled in my, with my battalion command was at second of the 82nd, which was uh, 30 Blackhawks. So I kind of covered that spectrum. You have, so you, did you fly every single rotary wing that the army had? Uh, no, I missed the, I missed the Apache. Oh, okay. It came out yeah. late and the LH-72 the, came out late. So yeah. I missed the last two. But yeah, I think I got everything else in the middle. <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow. I feel like you must have always been in syllabus. Like, all right, I got to learn a new uh, flight manual here. Time to... Well, it was really interesting early on because even coming out of Mother Record, when you know, talk about standardization and training, the differences in the Dash 10s between, you know, the OH-58 and the Cobra, you know, simple things like Chapter 5. Chapter 5, you know, in the OH-58 was color. Chapter five, you know, when you're talking about memorizing your gauges, mm -hmm. and then we had a chapter five that wasn't color. And I'm like, well, who's making decisions <laughs> as I'm trying to study? You know, and I've got to, you know, get out my magic marker to make these gray lines the right color. Mm -hmm. Yellow, red. Was the 58 the one where they just like send you over the horizon, see if you get shot at, and then you come right back? Or is that the different? Am I thinking something different? No, you're kind of talking about the Vietnam days where okay. they send it up the horizon. So then <laughs> yeah. the, the Cobra has somewhere, knows where it's yeah. kind of your smoke on the target. Yeah. 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 Okay. Oh, yeah. my God. <laughs> Heard you actually could do a loop in a Cobra and the thing won't fall apart. Can you? I uh, know you got some pretty good diving runs. I've never done a loop in a Cobra. Okay, okay. You know, I think at least uh, now that you want to mention it. No, right. okay. Absolutely not. <laughs> yeah. Had a, uh, a Vietnam era pilot regale me with a story of him doing two loops in that thing. And I was just like, oh my God, it was amazing. It's yeah. all about having a positive attitude or yeah. positive G's. Yeah, positive yeah. G's. Don't want to go <laughs> negative G's. So obviously you're no longer in the army, sir. What you do afterwards? Oh, so after the army, you know, I was trying to decide, uh, do I go on to that brigade command? I was supposed to get the brigade in Alaska. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was like, you know what? I think I might just start over. And mm -hmm. so I actually uh, started as a uh, aviation safety inspector with the FAA out at the Dulles FISDO. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, the qualifications were had been, you know, you got to be current in, in aircraft and uh, you had to be a multi-engine fixed wing guy. So as a helicopter pilot, I knew that you know, one of the things I thought I might want to do was to be a designated pilot examiner yeah. when I retired. So yeah. I was kind of working towards that. And I had, uh, it takes about, you know, I don't know if, if anybody wants to get a job with the FAA, you might as well start working on your application yeah. early. A friend of ours is a DP and he's in the Coast Guard and took him a while to get to it. Yeah. yeah. Well, try to get hired by the FAA. I mean, DP <laughs> is two, three, four years process probably trying to get in there because yeah. just everything's long. And, uh, and so I got a call on Friday after I just got back from my, you know, army job. I, we went over and checked on some troops in Afghanistan and it had said, Hey, do you want to do an interview on Friday or Monday with the FAA? And I was like, uh, how about Monday? And then I went home and I looked and I said, okay, what is an aviation safety inspector? Mm -hmm. Oh, it's a designee's boss. Well, if I was going to be a designee, I'm sure I could be the boss. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I mean, <laughs> yeah. So I started at, out there as an airplane and in 2008 was when they had a lot of accidents in the air medical community. Yeah. And so, believe it or not, the FAA at that time in 2008, I had to be a 1,500-hour multi-engine airplane guy to get a, to get a job. Mm -hmm. And then they realized, well, hey, maybe we ought to bring on some rotary wing experts to help us with the uh, medical community. And so that's when they first started doing the helicopters with yeah. the uh, FAA. You can come on board with just helicopter experience. So mm. that was a good, good move on their part. Yeah, yeah. good timing for you yeah. too when they, when they needed to do that. And so um, proceeded to work in Dallas or in, was it D to Dallas? Dallas. Oh, Dallas. Dallas. I'm here, sorry, yeah. I think you said Dallas. No, yeah, said, Dallas. Yeah, so I moved here. here. Yeah, I moved here in D.C. in 2006 with a job with the Pentagon. I got gotcha. you. And I've, have, I've been here ever since. I kind of like it with the three major airports in the area. Lots of uh, flying in the area. Lots of general aviation. 
I stayed at the Dulles Fizzo. I always used to joke that I was going to work at the Dulles Fizzo till the Metro actually got there. Uh -huh. It's almost there now. Yeah. And then come here. But instead, I was out there, I don't know, about three or four years. And I just uh, I just kept looking for opportunities at the FAA to make a difference. Mm -hmm. And ended up working my way down to policy, down mm -hmm. into uh, headquarters building. And I had worked at the Pentagon my last two years. So I was getting the hang of working at headquarters, mm -hmm. and, you know, policy and strategic stuff. Mm -hmm. And uh, and then my last job with the uh, FAA was the, I had worked up to, at one point I had a six month job as the as deputy associate administrator for aviation safety. So that was, it was pretty good to see how everything was made and, and actually was there in that position when the, we had the accident in the Hudson. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah. you know, there's uh, dealt with from the policy level at a senior executive level of the FAA, some interesting accidents. Yeah, absolutely. Did you um, do a lot of aviation safety when you were in the Army prior to, to retiring? Yeah, well, I, I would think as a commander, you, you know, you're always of dealing course. with safety. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, I had, uh, I did have, I've never, one thing, you know, I, my dad would knock on wood, you know, but I would say that uh, one thing that I was proud of is uh, I took every soldier that deployed in, under my command home from Iraq. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and safety wise, we did have one accident where we lost a Blackhawk. I was talking a little earlier, uh, with Kenny about, uh, OPAT aircraft. So mm -hmm. it was during a training mission for that, that, uh, we lost an aircraft, but we didn't lose any soldiers. So I think, uh, you know, at one point when the army early on, I was also a ranger. So I was at the smallest level of training for the, you know, as far as yeah. leadership. Yeah. And when you talk about safety, you know, should it be its own standalone paragraph? Do you work it into everything? So I think I was deeply involved with always trying to figure out what is the risk we're dealing with, with the actual event we're talking about mm. and being able to identify, I think the risk. So I say yes, every, you know, all the time, yeah. even in personal life. Yeah. And all that's what the thing we used to try to get our soldiers to do is, you know, don't turn off your safety hat when you go home on Friday night and turn it back on on Monday, please keep it on over the weekends. Cause you know, the amount of people I'm sure you have lost in your service as well, you know, on personal stuff is crazy mm. as well. I'm curious because, sir, you're the first uh, spec ops uh, pilot that we've talked to on this podcast. Um, and I know that you're in the aviation uh, safety world now with the civilian side. But as far as going out on missions that you did uh, in your past time in the Army, what was the the risk tolerance? Um, and it, like probably in Iraq as well. Like, do you, do you just go and you're like, hey, if this doesn't work out, this doesn't work out? Or is there... Is there the ability to say, no, this mission is not safe enough? I would assume that like it is a, hey, we are going kind of mentality um, in that community. But I've never been in that community, so I'm, yeah. just, I'm curious. Yeah, no, that's, uh, that's an interesting question. Very good question. And uh, the first thing that comes to my mind, I go back to 97. When we, well, first of all, you know, in the, in the MH-47s is what I did a lot of time. In. Right. And so with the MH-47, we transitioned the glass cockpit. And the unit itself had uh, had a couple accidents, uh, mm -hmm. no fatalities, but there was a problem with the transition to glass, no doubt. And so I had commanded a company in Savannah, and actually General Cody, who ended up being the vice chief of staff of the Army, you mm -hmm. know, came down at the time, and and I I actually commanded in a B Company Third Battalion, One Sixtieth, and he wanted me to come to A Company Second Battalion, One Sixtieth, because they had had two accidents, mm -hmm. and I had I still had a good record. I still do have a good record, yeah. Uh, like I said. And um, so I came up and commanded a company a second time inside Spec Ops, which is not not the norm. Right. And it was dealing with the glass. And so we got into the glass and the things was about standardization. And it was interesting, the conversation we had, because the other thing we were doing with that glass is we also had a multi-mode radar. 
So we were trying to, we had the capability to fly far at 100 feet, 300 feet, or 500 feet. Mm -hmm. And uh, so you get the training aspects, the standardization aspects, and um, on the training side, it was like, hey, here's what you're going to have displayed on the class, because the class gives you such great options. And I remember the pilots coming back and said, no, I've got all these options that, you know, you can't tell me that what I'm going to display on my cockpit. I said, you're right. I can't. And if you don't display it my way, then you just don't fly. But it's your option. <laughs> I want to make sure you feel comfortable with having an option. <laughs> oh, that's good. But, yeah. So that, and then, you know, as far as risk, you know, the thing I tried to do as commanders, I got Delta, you know, Delta aircraft. I had the opportunity to move up to the Echo model at the time. Mm -hmm. And the, with the multi-mode radar in 97, it had the capability, like I said, to go IFR. And it was really interesting because they knew that, you know, they're still trying to figure out the display. And while everything was automated, a lot of automation in the Echo model, they would not allow you to fly coupled while you did the hardest thing possible, which is a multi-mode radar at the lowest altitude. <laughs> so you had to actually hand fly it. And so a lot of times we couldn't keep up with the queue. Mm -hmm. And so we started, you know, flying with my SIP, Chuck Gann at the time, he, he was able to figure out how do you figure out the, you know, you actually looked at the data. So we would pull up the data page and be able to look at the data and determine the power settings to put, start applying so that we can actually follow it. And then the other thing I tried to do is I tried to implement training in IFR conditions on IR Route 67 down around Nashville. Mm -hmm. And when we tried to do that, you know, I had a hard time convincing my leadership to do this IFR training at low altitude because of the risk. Mm -hmm. And so... But, my, but I had to really push, actually, to do the training because, um, you know, I felt that we had a $40 million aircraft the taxpayers paid for. I'm going to get a call from the White House someday saying, go fly, mm -hmm. and we're not going to be ready to do it. Mm -hmm. So we pushed. We did the training. You know, the first couple times down there, you, you talk to ATC and say, yeah, I want to descend IFR and IR-67. They're like, okay, cancel IFR. I'm like, negative, we want to maintain IFR. So then we got into the procedures where we were doing basically a no-radar uh, flights, so you had to do the position you're, reporting next. Report. You're below the minimum oh factory and altitude yeah. and everything. Yeah, yeah. So we, you know, and it was made for jets, IR routes. Right. So we start flying them on helicopters, IFR, and we start closing down big blocks of airspace for like an hour. <laughs> yeah. Oh, they yeah. must have been really <laughs> happy yeah. with you. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but we worked it out. So you know, there is a. I I felt you know. So we always push, but I always wanted to be the person that I mean, and I said no to my guys a couple times yeah. because they were, you know, we got to do this. We could do this. Um, but yet, uh, you know, there's some, there's some times that uh, being able to fly in those other aircraft, having the background of knowing, can we do this? And should we do this are mm -hmm. two different things. A lot mm -hmm. of times, can we do this? Probably, but, but there's some, there's some risk in there. And uh, you know, there's, I got a specific example where, you know, as a, on a joint staff, where I would, you know, like Chinooks, you know, when you get up to 7,000 feet or, you know, I, that's where, that's the highest I would like to be at one because we did aerial refueling. Mm -hmm. So when you get up at aerial refueling, as the air gets thinner, you're going forward, more forward with the cyclic, the forward, you go with the cyclic, the, the front blade's coming down. You've got four feet, six inches clearance as I'm moving to that movement to contact Ugh. over the drone, right? Yeah. So as I move forward to that drone. That's not a lot. Yeah. So the higher you go, the harder it is to get gas. Uh -huh. And so I was always the guy, you know, what? not the guy, I was joint staff. I get to look at the plans and decide whether they were going to do it or not. Right after I had left, they, uh, I had got replaced on the joint staff by, by an Apache guy. Mm -hmm. And he allowed a mission at a higher altitude 
they extend it. They, they extended the routes because they weren't getting the gas. I'm like, of course they extend it because they're, yeah, uh, if everything was perfect, they'd be able to get gas at 10 grand. But, mm-hmm. um, but then it, it caused an incident because they couldn't get gas. Everything got drug on. It affected the mission. And it's like, you know, yeah. Did they have to, somebody has got to say no. Yeah. Somebody has got to say no at some point. Yeah. Um, and it's, I think it's interesting that you bring up, you know, risk, um, from a mission perspective and then also a training perspective, like how much risk is warranted for a, a training mission. And kind of like you alluded to of like, well, at some, at some point, like we may be asked to do this mission and if we've never trained it, well, then we're not going to be good. We're not going to be proficient at it. And something that we deal with in the coast guard quite a bit of talking about, um, you know, you and I were talking a little bit before we started of, um, we do a lot of training and, like, okay, um, we're at a unit, our weatherman's are 502 is, is a typical Coast Guard um, weatherman's for training. And if I have like a fully qualified aircraft commander next to me or instructor pilot, I'm like, yeah, I don't think I need to fly in 502 today to just go do whatever. Um, but if you have a um, co-pilot who's on their progression to make aircraft commander, um, sometimes it's worthwhile to be like, hey, have you ever seen what it looks like at 502? No, like, let's cool. go. Guess what we're doing today? Like, yeah. we're going to go fly, and um, you just got to be. It's calculated risk um, to make sure that you are prepared to do the mission that that you're asked to do. Um, and it sounds like you guys were able to handle that and do that really well. Yeah, I think that's a that's a key thing is deciding. Okay, you've got your minimums, but uh, is it a training event or you know the thing that cracked me up in the army quite often was that you know when you had VIP transport. And they wanted you to fly in the worst weather because I have to get there, right? Yeah, and so yeah. the only reason we're going to fly to today right is because I got to fly this two-star general. Yeah. And it's like, wait a second. So, you know, now I got to look at the PIC who's flying. And a lot of times what, what I would do, because my background, of course, with the 160th and, and stuff was that, okay, and I did fixed-wing stuff. So I, yeah. as far as flying IFR, a lot of helicopter guys I always found every time I took over a unit, not a, not a lot of people were flying in the clouds. They weren't actually going out in IMC conditions. And so I always pushed that training, any mm-hmm. opportunity we could, because the, the bottom line in the Army is, you know, we're not going to assault a, a fogged-in hill. So, we're, we, you know, so normally the target's going to be fine. Mm-hmm. The infantry guys are going to be waiting on us. And if we got IMC en route and we don't, Go if we want to try to, you know, uh, scud run mm-hmm. versus going up and in it and then come back out. I mean, mm-hmm. that's the stuff that we got to maximize. Yeah. So the, uh, yeah, it always cracked me up. And then, and the, so as a commander, I would a lot of times talk to my boss and he'd be like, what do you mean I got to sign this risk assessment? I'm like, yeah, I'm going to be the PIC on this mission. He goes, why are you flying it? I said, because I don't think we ought to do it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Uh, Culture-wise, I mean, you mentioned that a little bit about, um, you know, kind of the training culture and the safety culture in the Army. Was there a significant shift when you moved into the FAA role or your role now at HAI? Because um, we, as military or prior military pilots, are very mission-oriented, right? We're going to get the mission done where the mission mentality is different in the civilian community, right? It's We are a transport service, for example, for EMS, get to A to B, but it's more important to keep the like the air crew is like, we don't have the weather minimums. We just don't go. So was that a hard transition for you to shift mentality there or was it uh, pretty seamless for you? How did that go? No, that's a, that's a good question because it was a, um, not sure if it's a mentality, what the word was, but the thing that um, I found out with the government or with the FAA was that as a commander, you know, you're able to identify the risk and, uh, you know, figure out what the hazards are and then mitigate those hazards. 
when I when I started doing work for the FAA, you know, I started as GS12, just out there doing check rides and stuff. And I would call and I'd say, hey, you know, if this here's a problem. We got this guy didn't meet the regulation. He didn't do this, this, and this. Mm-hmm. I'd like to give him training on this, this, and this, and then be able to give him the check ride. And they're like, no. So there was never an ability to actually identify the risk and then actually mitigate it hmm. and help. It was always a yes or no, black or white. Your purely deal. evaluation. Yeah. Either you met it or you or you right. didn't. Whereas we're used to like, okay, well, you didn't get it. Let's, right. let's I mean, we're going to get you there by the end of the day, you know, or, or maybe next week. So that would be hard for me. <laughs> Very it hard. It was hard. Yeah. Man, that's crazy. Is it different here at HAI? Like, and what's your role in the safety culture here? Uh, at HAI. Well, certainly, hopefully, you know, a lead from the top down. Chris yeah. has, Chris Hill has been doing a great job for it. It's, it's always about, you know, what are the risk you got, you know, first step, which I don't know it's, if it's been new in the last 20 years. I mean, I've been around a little while, but, you know, just identifying the risk. And that one of the, one of the things that uh, when I was at the FAA was again, you know, I moved up and I had to actually, in order to move into supervisory uh, positions, my first supervisor job was uh, I took over Colgan Airlines as the frontline manager after the Colgan Air crash up in Buffalo. Mm. And so when I was dealing with the... Which, v- which one was, was yeah, that, the, that? The one. rudder one? Well, it actually what happened was he had set the autopilot on a slow descent to, for the approach. And when it got down to the approach, um, it's kept holding the altitude and it slowed back and it stalled. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. a, I, I don't think I'm familiar with that Q400, one. Q400, okay. I think it was the okay. aircraft... Yeah, and so killed fifty people, killed yeah. some people on the ground as well. Okay, um, but yeah, so I and I was dealing with the VPs of that company, and it's like asking them to do a good risk analysis if they want to go to a new location. I was just shocked at the, the lack of ability to identify all the all the risk and hazards, yeah, and mm-hmm. then become and mitigate them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you don't know what's out there, yeah, that's all. That's the first step, right? Like, right. hey, what's different about today? What could kill us today yeah. that we're not. We're not paying attention to. Yeah, so I still flight instruct a little bit on airplanes and helicopters. Try to fly with owners mostly, and even you know, just transition to older gentlemen in a Mooney. You know, I just that just that simple question, uh, and it was new to him. You know, being in his uh, late seventies, and I said, "Hey, just for today, everything we're going to do. Tell me what are the risk? What do you mean? Well, there's got to be some risk. I mean, give me the top yeah. three risks that may cause a problem in today's flight. Yeah, I'm not mm-hmm. sure what you mean. <laughs> yeah. I think uh, that falls into like CRM that the airlines uh, train to the whole threat error management um, to kind of continuum. What's the specific threat or error that's going to trap us today? And then how are you going to manage that? And, you know, having that conversation going continually is really important to keep the aircraft, whatever you're flying uh, safe um, specifically. So, yeah. How did you get your fixed wing time? Because Army doesn't do a whole lot, right? No, I okay. didn't I didn't do Army fixed wing at all. I, it, as soon as I got to Fort Bragg, the, right out of flight school, I went right down to uh, Fayetteville Airport and started flying down there. Dang. You know, them big, you know, it's it's got to be bigger than a 130, right? Because it's called a Cessna 150. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Way bigger. Are you, uh, how many hours do you have total, sir? Uh, about 7,000. Yeah. And I, uh, Chris was telling us you fly in the Robinson. Yeah. How's that? That's good. I mean, it's, uh, you know, I've got my, I was doing a lot of stuff to get my CFIs. And, and as I went through, since I, you know, ran out of flight school, as you just asked, I went to fixed wing. So when I was doing the work or working towards my CFI, I always kept doing back and forth. Uh, all right, what do I most qualified and comfortable in for this check ride? Okay. Mm-hmm. What, and so as I did all the add-ons, I went back and forth. 
And when I got my CFI rating, I actually got my CFI rating in the R22. Mm-hmm. That was my first CFI rating. And, and it was funny out at St. Louis is where I went. So I'm at the current, currently flying Chinooks with the 160th. And on the weekends, I'd drive out to St. Louis and I'd fly R22s and do auto rotations, you know, in an R22 while mm-hmm. I'm flying Chinooks during the day. <laughs> <laughs> it couldn't be any more different. I had a, uh, I was flying an aircraft cross country for the Coast Guard a couple months ago and we landed at Alexandria, um, Louisiana, not here. Uh, and we're a power limited aircraft, very cognizant of where the wind is. Like a lot of people joke about the 65 is it's like a multi-million dollar wind meter. At least our, <laughs> our 60 counterparts do that. Cause like, okay, where's the wind coming from? Hey, the 65's down there hovering. That's the way we need to point. Cause they don't care. Uh, and I felt the same way with the Chinook cause there was a Chinook there, uh, taken off and they took off with a 30 knot tail. And it's just like, nah, we don't care. Just going to lift up and <laughs> blast into oblivion. Yeah. Doing the star Wars. I just, backing up into a tailwind and just a pedal turn into the wind. <laughs> yeah, like, okay, cool. Yeah. yeah. Oh man. So is there any uh, hesitancy or uh, when flying in a single engine helicopter? I mean, we're, yeah. I'm, I'm only a dual engine guy. Uh, you know, I'd look at a uh, Robinson. I think, oh, that thing's ran by like a helicopter or the lawnmower uh, motors in that thing kind of mentality. It's so small, but uh, is it difficult to fly? Is it different? Um, do you, do you well, like it? well, the single engine, you know, um, my single engine story was I went from Little Birds right to Chinooks. Mm-hmm. So when I found out I was going to start flying uh, the Chinooks, uh, you know, I bought myself a Ford F-150 with a king cab so I can start getting <laughs> so used to some mm-hmm. more stuff yeah. behind mm-hmm. me. Mm-hmm. And then I've got to get used to crew chiefs too. Yeah, so yeah. now I got crew chiefs uh, that are doing a great job back there. And, you know, then you get into the verbiology, making sure everybody's using the same terminology. Yep. Yep. And... Uh, <clears throat> You talk about you know some of the stuff on on single engine versus dual engine and 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 when I had my first uh, uh, multi yeah you know, I was flying we were flying IFR in a Chinook from uh, from Campbell down to Savannah and uh, we had a chip light come on in the engine mm-hmm. so you know we pulled the chip we, you know I talked to the guy next to me he goes well, what are you gonna do I said well what's the emergency procedure <laughs> we're gonna pull we'll the engine off, we're gonna pull yeah. the engine offline and so we pulled the engine offline because in the Chinook you know although I can go up to fifty four thousand pounds. I can fly a single engine up to 40,000 pounds. Mm-hmm. So it was no big deal. We were like somewhere around 35. We didn't have an altitude issue, nothing. We land. I call the maintenance guy and he goes, well, what'd you do? I'm like, what do you mean? What did I, I do? I do with the emergency procedure. Yeah. He goes, okay, because, you know, Chinook guys, they normally don't want to pull that engine offline. I'm like, okay, well, I was the little bird guy. I only had <clears> one <throat> engine, so I didn't, I have no yeah. problem flying with one engine. Oh, that's interesting. So it was like one of those, as I went through the different aircraft that I've been flying, yeah. the mentality that goes with the airframe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I always find it interesting because, um, you know, there's other government agencies, whether it's local or federal, that are flying single-engine helicopter with with no floats, and they don't think twice. Like, they just go in and they affect the rescue or they go do something where it's like, we'll sit there and talk about, like, well, what happens if we lose an engine? Like, well, we have fly-out. When, when will we turn out? And they're, they're just like, oh, yeah, if we lose an engine, we'll be uh, somewhere right down there, <laughs> you know? And um, uh, get out of the helicopter, do their egress procedure. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, uh, now I learned a lot with, uh, with the off, you know, of course being over water a lot more as you guys are when I start doing some Navy ops, you know, when you start loading that Chinook down and we start doing single engine capable and what the Navy wants to, you know, a Navy, it's interesting. We can do stuff with a single engine helicopter and they don't have a problem. But the minute you start doing stuff with a multi-engine helicopter, now you have a set, you want to follow the Navy rules that require, you can't go to the full load if you got two engines Yeah, and we had mm-hmm. to operate at single engine capability with the load. That was that was new to me as an army guy. Yeah, 
Shifting gears a little bit, sir, um, being the head of HAI here, is there a um, is there anything that keeps you up at night? Is there any uh, big issue that you guys are trying to tackle that you see in the industry? Well, the mo- number one thing people talk about is insurance rates late, lately have gone oh, really? through the roof. Yeah, uh, so we're trying to help with uh, with that right now. Mm-hmm. Workforce development is another biggie. Um, so that's that's going to hurt everybody. Just not having the people, or what yeah. do you mean by that? I mean the training on the, both the maintenance sides as well as pilots. I mean there was a big yeah. pilot shortage was hitting the news right before the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Well, the pandemic, you know, certainly got everybody distracted for two years, but that's going to come back really strong. And we haven't done a whole lot over the last two years to try to close the gap on uh, on a workforce. Yeah. So we so, anticipate that being an issue. What are you guys doing for that now? Like, what do you what do you see the future of HAI? in that specific world? Well, number one thing we're doing is we're starting a, a, uh, a work group to make sure we get the people that are actually affected by it and the people that see the hurdles out there to, to bring them together to see what we can do with education, uh, universities, mm. we, even with our Heli Expo now, we're going to try to get young younger kids involved, bring them out to watch uh, aircraft land at the next show in Atlanta. So anything... Hook them. Yeah, anything. Hook them when you can. <laughs> We'd like to do is, you know, I, I know from my FAA days, you know, where the FAA frowned on or certain inspectors, certain things. I still think, you know, a helicopter coming in, delivering a football to the 50-yard line at a big game is very good. <laughs> you know, and it's, you could be done safe. I mean, it's... Oh, uh, yeah. I have a funny story about that. Yeah. I, I feel like I want to share Did you it. do it? <laughs> no, I never got to land and deliver the football, but... Uh, uh, we were supposed to do a flyover for a uh, 49ers game after they had built their new stadium in, in uh, the South Bay there in San Francisco. Uh, and so we were doing it in conjunction in, in a formation flight with one of our fixed wing assets that's out of Sacramento. It's a C-27, mini C-130, essentially, same thing, except just two engines. And so we're sitting in a holding pattern. We have everything dialed in exactly when we need to leave to get right over the national anthem at the perfect time. And uh, it was at San Jose approach, like, okay, it's time to go. Here we go. And San Jose approach is like, hey, we got a Southwest aircraft coming in for landing. You need to do another two turns and holding. And I'm just watching the uh, time to go, like, tick up and the airspeed that the aircraft has to make to get on scene on time um, is going from like 120 ground speed up to like 300. So obviously our helicopter can't get there. And and instead of telling the fixed wing to go, we decide, the PIC decides to, I don't know, we'll all just go together. And we did this flyover right in the middle of the coin toss. Like looking down at the jumbotron and like all the captains on whoever the 49ers are playing are looking up like, who the heck are these guys flying over? The worst thing is they had us to the game afterwards. I was ashamed to show up in my flight suit. As you should be. As I should be. A terrible flyover. Who was your PIC for that? Wow. Dusty Williams. Yeah. 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 Commander Dusty Williams, (laughs) current operations officer of uh, New Orleans, soon to be XO. That's right. Great flyover. Yeah. Totally uh, off a tangent uh, uh, story there. That may be the worst flyover I've heard. It was a terrible (laughs) flyover, sir. It was... I'm ashamed of our performance. Actually, I don't don't know that you are ashamed because you're pretty eager to share that story. Dude, I love telling that story. I don't think they called us back for a flyover for a while down there. I think a no-show would have been better. I think a no-show would have been better. Well, we should have had the C-27, the fixed wing, just go do it. Although a a fixed wing flyover is... Now, a really good story at the after party would have been much better. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, that's what happened. Oh, my God. 
um, well, I just kind of went off on a complete yeah. tangent there. So. Uh, so what, what is driving the insurance rates up? Is it a lack of people? Is it a lack of training or is it just inflation? Everything's going no, up. I think it's, uh, the Boeing issues, you know, really? they're all tied together. I think a lot of the insurance companies, you know, there's only so many out there. And I think when you have such a big, um, you know, basically payout is what has happened over the last couple of years that mm. it's affecting everyone. Yeah. I've never even thought about insurance from a military, right. a military uh, standpoint. Right, right. Like, yeah. Coast Guard f- foots the bill if something goes wrong kind of mentality, yeah. but yeah. Um, What's been your uh, most memorable aviation highlight? Would you say? Hmm. Wow. See, my, my military highlight was been participating in the 50th anniversary of World War II and I actually got to jump onto San DZ for real. Oh, that wow. Was, uh, no that was like that. Yeah. 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 That was good. Aviation-wise, I mean, I'd have to go back to bringing everybody home from Iraq, man. That's, yeah. uh, that was big. That's huge. Man, that must have been a fun experience uh, doing the 50th anniversary. Jump master in the door, putting people out and then falling out and giving the briefing that day of, yeah, this is Son DZ. And it's not Son DZ Fort Campbell. This is Son DZ Holland. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's good. What else did you guys jump out at? We normally jump at a thousand. Yeah, just hop and pop. <laughs> hop and pop. <laughs> hop and pop, baby. <laughs> yeah, we don't do that. Yeah, well, we don't have an opportunity to pop. It's popping. It's just the length of the static line. Yeah, whatever, whenever <laughs> yeah. it goes, it, it you're done there. Um, I know the... Uh, the Canadian uh, guys are doing some, but they're doing higher stuff, aren't they? Yeah, we work with the a, we've worked with the the Royal Canadian Air Force um, and and doing joint training with them, and and they're they call them SARTECs, but they're um, basically the Coast Guard's equivalent of a rescue swimmer. They do jumps in addition to deploying out of the helicopter from the hoist cable or out the back. Um, they will do high altitude, 5,000 feet or so, um, jump out the back and, and deploy in. They're kind of, they're PJs essentially for the, for the Canadians. But um, yeah, uh, I, I wanted to jump back into safety culture Yeah, if, if you want to. Um, how do you drive a good safety culture in civilian aviation? And well, I, let me t- tell that to a better question. What is... How is the safety culture uh, right now in the civilian world? And um, is there room for improvement? Um, have you had any recent mishaps that have been eye-opening? I, I know I can think of uh, one in particular, but um, anything that you see that you need to go in a direction in terms of safety culture? I think, um, that as you, you mentioned, we talked about the training side of it, that uh, you know, just because the FAA, you meet the FAA minimum standards, and this came up um, last week with the, with some industry folks that said that the, the FAA needed to change their standard on biannual flight reviews, that it wasn't enough to do it every two years. Mm-hmm. The fact that that doesn't mean that you only do it every two years. I mean, you should be able to fly and mentor people. You know, my big, my answer to it, I thought from industry, was that anybody that's not out there flying regularly should get somebody to come sit with him. You know, it does, it'd be great if you get a new CFI to help him build time. Mm-hmm. You know, he doesn't have to do a lot or they or she, you know, because you want to make sure that we're, we're well-rounded. But um, but get up there and fly with somebody versus just going out there and doing solo flight all the time mm-hmm. and only taking that ride. So mentoring and and going out there, as, as we talked about with, hey, what are the, the top three things today that are the most risky? Even though it may not be risky, it may be the weather, maybe the length of the runway, uh, maybe that you didn't get enough sleep the night before, mm-hmm. but just thinking through all the different things and getting to have that mental checklist. I think there's definitely room for improvement. 
it certainly is the uh, one of the things in HAIs. You know, we really are an operator-based association, and the individual owner or the individual operator that rents a helicopter. I mean, sixteen percent of the accidents are coming out of there in the United States, mm-hmm. and so we're trying to do more of an outreach with the U.S. helicopter safety team on you know how does how can HAI help? Well, HAI can help by being a member of HAI. You know, it's it's ninety five dollars. It's not even uh, you know, it's not even a bag of an hour of gas on a helicopter. Yeah. But the amount of information and the available training uh, that we have online will certainly help reduce that. And you know, my two things is HAI is number one, we got to be safe, and number two, we got to help you be prosperous. Mm-hmm. And both of those go hand in hand. Yeah. And so many times that headline of that accident that's you know that doesn't need to happen. Uh, you know, we want to get rid of that. There is nobody. You know, we definitely. I've been on board since. Uh, I think 2016 when Matt Sakaro and and I as part of the U.S. Helicopter Safety Team came on with you know zero fatalities mm-hmm. and uh, and we and then what I had to do even from the FAA point perspective I'd stand in front of an audience that want to argue over me that you can't get there you know the civilian airlines really? got there oh yeah and that's when it's like I I couldn't believe it I don't think we get it anymore I think over over the years people have stopped arguing yeah or it actually is you know. Change the culture. Well, who is it? Yeah, who is it you want to get rid of? Which one of your relatives don't you want to come home tonight for dinner? Um, so I think people got it that there, you know, there is it is a possibility. I uh, know in a helicopter world, it just seems um, we're, we're struggling, uh, and it gets down to the a lot of it's uh, you know that human, um, and mm-hmm. and you know very few on the maintenance side, but we have had some maintenance issues as well. Um, but it's yeah. There are new. There are no new accidents, and we're just trying to figure out how do we help stop that person. You know, especially the individual operator slash owner that doesn't have doesn't have someone to say no. You can't fly. As I was talking earlier, somebody to say no. Mm-hmm. And so I you know it's something you know I tried to do with the, in the FAA, and maybe we can do it here with HAI. Where you know if you got a question in your mind about flying, and you need to talk to somebody. You know, call us and ask us. Tell us what's going on or your risk assessment. You know, we got a risk assessment that you can run through and mm-hmm. and we can help you say, yeah, this, yeah, I always say I'd much prefer to be on the ground looking up going, damn, I should have flown versus in the air going, how am I going to get out of this? And yeah. we say that a lot. Yeah. 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 Better, better to make that decision and be like, oh, it's clear day. Crap. I shouldn't have canceled, <laughs> but you're safely on deck. Yep. Um, and you can go tomorrow if you need to. Right? Yeah. How do you guys um, manage training opportunities in the helicopter community, specifically the industry where time is money, you're flying, you know, people from point A to point B, or you're going out and picking up somebody, uh, EMS, like how do you have time to add, like, I'm going to do an extra approach on this, this sortie, or I'm going to do this bit of hover work at the end of it, uh, or a couple of autos. Is that built into civilian flying or is that something that needs to be increased? Yeah, I think uh, that's probably a really good point. I don't know of a lot of owners that actually go out and do that. I know uh, the funny story I have the one time was I was out there with them. I was trying to do auto rotations and we're doing hovering autos. Yeah. And I did a hovering auto every quarter, you know, every um, 90 degrees. And I said, okay, you know, you have the controls. And he hovered over to parking. And I'm like, well, what are you doing? He goes, I didn't want to do those. He's the owner, right? And it's like, okay, um, what do I decide now? Do I decide to, you know, continue flying with this guy, just continue trying to help or do you give up yeah. on him? Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's something that we talk about a lot in, in our culture of um, just being the best person that you can be. And maybe that means like 
doing doing a little bit of extra stuff and doing those cut guns as, as we call them, you know, um, to make yourself better because one day it might actually save your life, you know. So uh, I think we're getting the side eye here. I think we're running out of time. Uh, Jim, thank you so much uh, for your time sitting down to talk to us today. Um, we normally like to end every session with some sort of aviation advice that you would like to give uh, any pilot listening out there or a younger version of yourself that would have um, helped you along your career. So yeah, uh, what do you got? Well, I think the one thing probably we didn't mention is, that, you know, the ability now for data recording and mm-hmm. being able to actually have something uh, in the aircraft that uh, you can, you can compete against yourself on every flight. Mm-hmm. What is it you wanted to do today? And then when you get done flying, you can download it and you can play it back on your computer and say, okay, how did I do today against me? And who else knows just me? And so if you, as you were just saying, Kenny, if you try to be the best you could all the time and be trained to that, I think you'll help us reduce that accident rate. So mm-hmm. that's what I would recommend. Get a data recorder in there, you know, compete against yourself and be the best you can. Yeah. yeah. And, sh- and sharpen those uh, around you. Like, Hey, I, yeah. you know, if you find some area where you're like, man, I was, I couldn't do a cut gun very well today, or man, I tried to do that uh, ILS with the, the foggles on and I couldn't, I couldn't do it and share that with another pilot to be like, huh, I wonder, wonder if I could go out and, and do that tomorrow mm-hmm. if I needed to. So yeah, pulling the, pull, pulling the camera, the footage, like for us specifically in the Coast Guard, like pulling that hoist cam footage of that hoist that you just did, even if it's out in training uh, and then sitting down as a crew and watching that afterwards, the training value is incredible. There's no other competing demands. You don't have other stimuli that you're uh, distracted with and you can say like, like, hey, like I screwed up there. I didn't say that right there. I could have done this better. Or, hey, this went really well. That's that's a really good point. Like, let's make sure we continue to use that technique in a future hoist or whatever that might be. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a really good point. Well, sir, um, don't want to keep you from your other meetings. Really yeah. appreciate you having us here at HAI. Thank you for welcoming us here and uh, for your insight. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's a joy to have you guys here and look forward to the next time we get to interact. Awesome. Our pleasure. All right. All right.